Hello and welcome to Connecting the Pieces, an Eastern Sector Development Team podcast focused on connecting, supporting and promoting good diversity, wellness and reablement approaches. My name is Dale Park and today with my colleague Lisa Dean, we'll be speaking with Gillian Roebuck from Donwood and Susie Richter from Accent Home Care about their journeys to reopening face-to-face social support groups. Thanks for joining us, Susie and Gillian. Could you just start by giving us a bit of an overview about your organisations and the types of Commonwealth Home Support Program services that you offer? So Accent Home Care is part of Tabulum and Templar Home for the Aged. Accent Home Care is the community care portion of that. And under that umbrella sits our social support group, which is actually the only Commonwealth Home Support Program that we run. But aside from or or side by side with that, we have we also administer home care packages from level one to four. We do or have primarily catered for kinds of German-speaking background, but the service is not limited to that. So we're multicultural. We have clients in both residential and community care that are from various cultural backgrounds. We have staff that speak German, Polish and English primarily on our staff who are able to communicate easily with clients, but... Uh, at the moment, our social support group is still very heavily populated with German-speaking clients, but it does run in both English and German. Thanks for that, Susie. And Gillian, could you tell us about Donwood? Donwood's an organisation that has both community and residential care. So we have 105 people that live here, and then we have somewhere between 80 and 100 people come in each week for CHSP services. So we have two services that we're funded for. One of them is social support group and the other one is physiotherapy. We run two different kinds of groups in the social support group area. So three days a week, we run memory support. So most of those people have some kind of diagnosis to do with their memory. And then we have two days a week for everybody else. So provided you're eligible for our service, then you you can join the other group. I guess our average new client to come in is about 82. But we have people who range from about 67 up to 98. Age is no indication of ability, either physical or mental ability. Absolutely. That's a really good point, Gillian. Dale and I uh, often talk about the fact that we should be looking at older people and not looking at them and thinking about their medical condition or their age, but actually looking at them as an individual. That's absolutely right, Lisa. We are always talking about that. I guess one of the things to start off with, could you both tell us how long your services have been up and running with face-to-face social support groups? We started early December. We were doing one-on-one face-to-face a little earlier than that. We came back in the middle of November. And I've got to say, when we reopened, most of our people were desperate to get back, absolutely desperate. They said that they would just about do anything to come back. They were so sick of 
you know, being stuck at home and looked after and, you know, told they can't do this and they can't do that. So we had them clamouring at the door straight away. And that was in November. So, Gillian, obviously the last 12 months has been challenging for a lot of people. Just quickly, what are some of the challenges that you have been hearing about from your clients around what's been happening in terms of COVID? Right at the beginning, there was a lot of fear. You know, they were worried about their own health. And then they sort of moved to, from fear to loneliness. If their family lived more than five k's away, it was difficult for them to come and visit them. And even when they were sort of allowed, they were, they were really nervous to do it anyhow. And then once with the social isolation came, the, them not going out, and they became much less physically able. So often, you know, they might have had a family member who, used to, who would walk with them, and then they didn't. And they didn't, they, a lot of families were really scared for their parents and they wouldn't let them go out. So, so from, they went from going shopping every week and maybe going out for coffee with someone and, you know, doing a lot of sort of incidental exercise to doing nothing, just sitting at home and being really lonely. So our services, while all during that really heavy lockdown, were all about trying to reduce their loneliness. Susie, I imagine the challenges that Gillian raised sound very familiar. With your social support group being an outings-based group, was there any other challenges or things of note that you or your team identified? We started noticing they were becoming more frail and more isolated. So they weren't keeping up with their perhaps routine little exercise program. And just that one day a week of outings was actually making a difference to their activity level and their fitness level. It was enough to motivate them to to stay a bit more healthy, to be a bit more connected, and they were starting to lose that. We were actually physically noticing and seeing those changes in our clients. So it was becoming rather important that they could start something in a face-to-face fashion again. Were there any communication concerns or things that you needed to put in place to support people who had English as a second language to ensure that they were getting the right information about COVID and the restrictions and things like that? Uh, Yes, we knew of clients that have had very limited English or no English, depending on what nationality. Many of our Polish clients fell into that category. Whenever we passed on information to our clients, we made sure that it was both in other languages and primarily in German uh, and or Polish for those people who would have had that difficulty. We we actually didn't find that very difficult because the Department of Health actually had most things in other languages that we were able to use templates of and we might just need to change it a little bit to um, accommodate perhaps our own information. Did clients raise with you any concerns they had about the risks in returning to normal service or going back to -to face-to-face services? In general, they're not super risk averse. And that we've sort of worked our services around that. Most of our clients actually had the attitude of, isn't it my choice? I just want to go out. So they were actually quite indignant that they weren't allowed to. They have the right 
to take a risk. So if they want to come to our service and take that really minimal risk, then they can do that. Thanks for that, Gillian and Susie. Some really great points there. And especially, Gillian, what you were just talking about in regards to clients who are able and willing to make assessments and judgments about risk and how they need to be able to enjoy their rights to dignity of risk. One of the things that I know Lisa and I have been very conscious of, and we've spoken about it with other people on the podcast, is the impact that COVID has had on issues of ageism. And I wondered if that is something that you've seen play out. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Yeah, it's like helicopter parents. We're helicoptering, or a lot of societies helicoptering around older people and forgetting that, you know, they have agency. They, they can make their own choices. And it's not for us to do that. So even our people with dementia, then they have carers and their carers make that together with the person, they they make that decision for them, whether they feel it's safe enough to come in and not come in or not come in. People are allowed to do what I'm allowed to do, you know? Just because you're old doesn't mean you can't make a balanced decision about what's safe for you. Thanks, Gillian. Your comments around client agency fit so nicely within the principles of a wellness approach which prioritises people's involvement in decisions and risk assessments that are ultimately going to shape and inform their care. That's so true, Lisa. Gillian and Susie, we've talked a little bit about how your clients weren't risk adverse, but what about yourselves as organisations? We've definitely noticed across the sector that there's a huge variance in regards to services that have opened up and gone back to -to face-to-face service delivery and those that haven't. I guess one of the things that we'd be interested in hearing from you about is how have you weighed up the risks in order to feel comfortable that it's safe to open up again? I do that every day. So at the moment, for example, there is nothing in our community. There's no COVID. There's nothing in the water. There's nothing anywhere. But if I if I see something, then we will will change what we do the next day. We're a small organisation, so we can we can react immediately, and we can decide. And my CEO has given me that uh, decision making power. That's great, Gillian. To have that level of autonomy and trust must have been really helpful. Susie, from your perspective, was there any other challenges or things that made the process of being able to judge when it was safe to reopen more difficult? We did have a little difficulty in finding information regarding specific or specific to social support groups, especially when we had a question of, you know, are we, what are we allowed to do? Are we allowed to start our services back? Are we not? There was a distinct lack of information anywhere that was was helpful. And in the end, we had to do exactly what we were talking about before is weigh up the risks, get all the guidelines, all of our restrictions in place, provided we were meeting restrictions and we were in line with everything else. 
and mm -hmm. weighed up our risks, we, we had made our own decision. And I thought that was a bit unfortunate. It would have been nice to have had a little bit more guidance and a little bit more support specific to social support groups because we are different under CHSP than we are to allied health, meals and those other services under CHSP. So that would have been a really useful thing to have had. I think that's a really important point to reflect on as well in the absence of direct information about yes you can start I think that also leads people to be on the cautious side of things so I think for both of you and for others in the sector as well who have shown that that leadership and that ingenuity to go and really research and ensure that there are things in place and that you're doing things safely and it's then leading to a really positive outcome for your clients, that really does deserve to be recognised. Gillian, thanks for sharing some of the challenges associated with reopening your service. We've also been hearing from other contacts and networks that there seems to have been a deterioration in the physical and mental health for some clients. So I'm interested to know whether this has been the case in your service and what this has actually meant for the reopening of your services? We've put a bit more movement in the program. So we've like gradually added more movement. So we've always had some kind of exercise component, but we're putting a bit more walking around, even if we just get out of the building and do a walk, a couple of walks around the block. Um, we have, we've been playing sort of physical games and doing chair-based exercises to try and get their uh, bodies moving a bit more. We're well into people being back. And I would say most people are really starting to pick up now because they're getting more than what we give them. So they, they're back to doing a lot of the things they were before. Gillian, you mentioned earlier that you are funded for physiotherapy service. And I'm curious whether the physios have been able to provide you with any advice about how you might support clients to rebuild or regain their strength as part of the return to service. One of my staff is the allied health assistant to physio, but she also does the program. She also works on the floor. So she's designed new exercises for them actually. So they've got a more focused exercise program, I suppose, than what they had before. Gillian, since going back to face-to-face -face service delivery, what are some of the changes that you have put in place that have allowed you to open up? Well, right at the beginning in November, we started off, we did a, we did a morning session from, we said no meals and we did from like 10 till 1 and then 1.30 till 4 o'clock. We did that for about two weeks and then things loosened up a bit and we figured that it was okay now to give people lunch. We've got these giant concertina doors. So we told people that we would probably have to open the doors depending on how many people came and they should wear warm clothes. And what did the first day look like for your service, Susie? Yes, we started with a bit of a phase-in program where we had 
Um, we had a couple of spaces that were in-house. So we started with that, with just a morning tea in an hour or two. We had to arrange that a little bit differently so that there wouldn't be any kind of sharing of utensils or the milk jug. We had the biscuits on a plate that weren't able to take their own biscuit, for example. So there were little things like that we needed to modify to start with. And of course, the mandatory things like mask wearing, social distancing, hand sanitising. We had a screening program where we screened each client with all of the COVID questions uh, and the health questions prior to their attendance or prior to be picked up. And then we, we lengthened that to a half day and then we progressively lengthened that to the full program. And we also had half numbers where we only had three or four clients at a stage and then we increased them to six or seven clients and then we increased them to the whole group. So I'm hearing that as part of your return to face-to-face -face service, you both looked at the hours of the program or the length of time that people could access your service to accommodate people gathering in smaller groups over shorter periods of time. You've given consideration to whether meals could be provided and you've obviously looked for potential adjustments, giving consideration to environmental factors, such as where the program is being held and the size of your room and the setup. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, looking at the activities that you conducted within the program that took into account the potential to improve deteriorations that you had been or heard about in terms of clients' health status. I think that's really practical and helpful information that others out there will be able to learn from. One of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is because at our Eastern Region Social Support Network Group, people were asking these sorts of questions. How are you back? What did you do? So I think it's really useful to outline the things that you have both put in place to get back to face-to-face -face service delivery. One of the things that we haven't touched on is transport. And we all know that transport's always an issue. So how has transport played out during COVID and then moving back into face-to-face -face service delivery? We started off with no transport. So, I mean, that reduced our numbers as well. Eastern volunteers were, were providing transport from the very beginning and which was really good because they didn't none of the services were back but uh, so but they had drivers so we were able to get anyone who needed transport in with eastern volunteers and they just brought one person at a time we have started this year i think uh, we started giving transport but we haven't refilled the bus normally we can have six or seven people in the bus but we try and keep it at about four. And if we're going to go any more than that, we make sure the last person will be on for less than 15 minutes. Everyone must wear a mask in the bus. Even though they don't have to wear it here, they must wear it when they're in the bus. And we have the windows open, which is sometimes not pleasant, but we have to have that uh, airflow because that's, that's one of the things they said. It's very important to keep the air flowing. And Susie, being an outings program and having your own transport, were they the same sort of steps that you had to put in place to be able to satisfy the requirements of, of starting up again? We started also with 
just single transports, one person at a time, and then we progress to two people in the bus and the same kind of procedures that we needed to follow. We would try to pick up um, so that they don't all brush past each other, for example, and that the minimum amount of time is actually spent on the bus as possible. So our procedures have been pretty much the same. Interested to hear about the success of being back since you've been operating, whether it's a client story or any feedback. We have noticed that one or two clients have improved a little bit in their mobility, just almost probably from a motivational point of view rather than anything physical. Uh, because they're just really so keen to keep coming back that the hope levels are up, the motivation's a little bit up and they're actually keeping themselves a little bit more active maybe in preparation to that next week's outing that they're going to come on. It's great to hear examples of clients being able to regain functionality and to know that their motivation spurred on by the recommencement of social support is one of the things that is really driving them. So we know motivation is obviously a key requirement in the reablement space and something that all service providers, including social support, need to be conscious of while working with clients. You know, there will be a need, perhaps for many, to regain functionality and mobility. And this is a real opportunity for social support groups to support the short-term goal achievement within their program. That's absolutely right, Lisa. I couldn't agree with that anymore. And I think there's a really good example that you've provided there, Susie. Thinking about other social support groups who maybe are about to reopen or haven't reopened yet, what advice would you have for them? Write everything down. And we, we kind of just made a checklist what we needed to address or what restrictions or what considerations we needed to make that would allow us to be able to offer that service and taking into account the risks that might have been involved in it. And, and just to weigh up the risk to our clients if they don't have that service compared to maybe the risk of actually having that service in, in the context that these people are still independent and they're living in the community still and weighing that risk up on both sides, what would be the best outcome for those clients? I think what you're saying is really important, Susie. It's about uh, putting the person at the centre and thinking about them first and foremost. So I think it's really great advice uh, to anyone else who has yet to return. And I wondered, Gillian, whether there was anything that you might want to add to that advice to those thinking about returning to service. Look, I think Susie's pretty much covered everything. I said it to a T. You know, have have your plan, work out your risk from all perspectives and and follow through. And remember that their clients, it's, it's all about them and their wishes. The idea of looking at the risk, but from the perspective of the client, not the perspective of the organisation, is something that we've been talking about for a long time and and saying that we need to ensure that there is dignity of risk for the client and that they are involved and that, as Lisa was saying, they're at the centre, that we make our decisions based on that, not based around 
our organizations being risk adverse because of the potential impact. So thank you both very much for taking that approach and sharing that, sharing your approach with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks guys. And thank you for listening. This has been Connecting the Pieces, a podcast for the Eastern Sector Development Team. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out our website, esdt.com.au, for other resources and contact information. Connecting the Pieces is recorded on Wurundjeri land. The Eastern Sector Development Team acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional custodians of land and sea throughout Australia and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Eastern Sector Development Team is supported by the Australian Government Department of Health and although funding has been provided by the Australian Government, the materials and comments made do not necessarily represent the views or the policies of the Australian Government.